Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we're your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion around the cool things happening in and around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us on Twitter using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. News. Let's do news. So news on the 12th of January 2018. The big news today is the launch of 31 satellites, including Cartosat 2, a Carbonite 2 from Earthi, four more doves, Telsat Leo Phase 1, Ice Eye X1. I've got some numbers for you. Do you want to hear them? Yeah, go for it. 126, 204, 193, 172, 176 and 367. These are the amount of satellites launched from 2012 to 2017. Whoa. 367 in total, according to spacetrack.org last year, more than double from 2016. That is brilliant news. That is amazing. And already we've had 31 today and there was a launch Last week, wasn't there a Chinese launch? Yes. So we've already had more than a satellite launch per day. We're averaging, we're ahead, <laughs> we're ahead already of the world record. That's 2018 done then. Yeah, amazing, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, wow. But 367 last year, an enormous amount. Even when I looked at it, I was, I was stunned. And linked to that as well, I mean, you already mentioned the two Chinese put up uh, last week. They're known as the, the Gaojing One satellites. And they're the second pair, I think. Uh, I think a first pair was launched in December 2016. And these are providing images of 0.5 metre panchromatic and 2 metre multispectral. And I think they're going to be commercial satellites. So hopefully people outside of China will be able to access the data as well. I mean, there's just so much data out there at the moment. It's, um, it's amazing opportunities. So I see you've also got something about hyperspectral CubeSats. Yeah, I saw... ESA put up a, a, a news page on their, on their websites about the first hyperspectral camera to fly on the next on ESA's next CubeSat. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but these are generally normally quite big, bulky things. So it's impressive hand-sized hyperspectral imager. So that, this is due to be launched uh, on the 2nd of February, I believe. Okay. I'm just reading on their page now. It's going to have 45 visible and near-infrared spectral bands wow that's yeah that's gonna be proper hyperspectral then yeah and hyperspectral it feels as if it's the forgotten sensor to me there's not that many of them i haven't worked too much with hyperspectral data in the past but i think there's quite a lot of value in it you know we are seeing more bands on commercial satellites i suppose the rush has been towards higher spatial resolution and then secondly higher temporal resolution yeah. I got two more things I'm I'm excited about. <laughs> you sound excited about them. <laughs> yeah, so one is that uh, the USGS and NASA have selected their new Landsat science team. And the reason that this is super exciting is that the period that this team are going to be working, which is uh, 2018 to 2023, sees the launch of, well, fingers crossed, sees the launch of the Landsat 9 satellite Yeah, and everything that's going to happen from there. So this is a really good step forward in the whole workflow in order to get Landsat 9 up and operational, being able to drive the science. And there's some really interesting names in there. There's a lot of people. 
there are a lot of people. And I think if you're involved in Earth observation, you, you need to head over there and see who, who is involved, because these are the people really that are going to be shaping the science behind the, uh, the Landsat program for the next five years or so. Yeah, great, isn't it? The final thing that I want to say, so um, I've recently got into something called Fully Charged on YouTube, and it's Robert Llewellyn, the guy who plays Crichton in Red Dwarf. Yeah. And basically, he hosts a whole load of things about electric vehicles and the move to renewables and electrification of, of technology. Yep. And it's really good. And one of the reasons that I like it is that he's really enthusiastic, especially when he talks about gigawatts of power. And I came across this, and this is just, I just want to be able to say gigapixel. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pierre Marcuse uh, and um, a team of, of people from Sentinel Hub and, and elsewhere have created a four gigapixel temporal mosaic of Sentinel 2 data for Europe. And it looks absolutely stunning, i got to say. Yeah. This is a 64,000 by 64,000 pixel temporal mosaic. That's amazing. <laughs> wow, that was that was an amazing piece of news to go from uh, Crichton to six six a bit gigabytes of <laughs> a quality link. I think it is. You know, I never know what you're going to say. That's that's the joy. <laughs> Shall we do our, our linking bit of news? Our final bit of news. Yeah. So finally, we the semi-automatic classification plugin also known as SCP version 6, codename Greenbelt apparently, which is only going to be compatible with QGIS 3, is due to be released in 10 days' time as we speak, so the 22nd of January. This is a really brilliant plugin for QGIS. Can't encourage people enough to look at this fantastic resource. And there's good videos, good tutorials, you can download data straight from it, Sentinel, Landsat, Modis, all sorts. This is a really great tool, and it's great news that it's going to be ready for QGIS 3. We're going to talk about open data uh, in a little bit, not so much open software, but open software is is an amazing resource uh, you know, that, that I use, and, and I'm sure you use a lot in, in the day-to-day operations yeah definitely and to, i'm fairly sure this is a, a one-man project as well mm. and the support is amazing the the quality of the product is really good but as soon as anyone brings up an issue on the google plus support or whatever it either gets fixed or or the query gets answered and i think just being able to have something where you can do the whole workflow from obtaining the data to pre-processing through to post-processing and band calculation and maths I mean, it's it's really neat, and it's a good way to get people into remote sensing. Which takes us on quite nicely to our topic of open data. What is open data? It's just free data, isn't it, right? Oh. <laughs> it's like <laughs> QI. <laughs> Well, it, I suppose it depends on what you mean by free. So, yeah, it, it's data that is made available uh, without restrictions, without license restrictions. And as part of that, invariably, it means that it comes without any cost to the person who is using it. Obviously, there are, there are costs elsewhere, and we'll probably discuss these in a little bit. But in the same way that uh, free and open source software is developed, there, there's sort of the implication that there's a, a free in no cost, and then there's also a free, as in freedom, 
And it's, I think the, the thing that makes open data open data is the ability to have that freedom to use the data however you want. And there's yeah. no restrictions on whether it's commercial or research or whatever. Uh, and to generate new products off the back of that. And there's no restrictions on what you can do with those products that you generate. So that to me is what open data is. And uh, is it fair to say that most open data is either governmental or science-based? Um, yeah, I would say that that is probably the case, but it's more to do with the way in which those data have been funded in terms of their collection in the first place. So. Yeah. If you think about it, the government is funded by taxpayers and a lot of science is funded from government. So it makes more sense for those organizations to make the, the data available back to ostensibly the people who have, um, have funded that, i.e. the taxpayer. But yeah. There's no reason why um, other commercial entities and organizations can't open up their data. But yes, you're right. Uh, the majority of it is government and, and science based. I did a, a little bit of background uh, reading. Uh, it's not just totally winged, this part. That <laughs> <laughs> does sound like it is, I think. Um, so I either refreshed or learnt, probably more like learnt, that in May 2007, the USGS announced that it was going to make scenes from Landsat 7 available over the internet as a pilot project for the first time. And then the following year in April 2008, so just under a decade ago, the USGS, the US Geological Survey, decided that it was going to make all archive Landsat imagery available for free on the internet. So 10 years of free data. And I read this article it said at the time that, that, that this article was written, which was 2008, that the USGS receives a couple of million dollars a year to process the data, as well as some supplemental income of two to four million in the sales of each scene. They, they, they figured that by putting, at this point in time, they figured that by putting the data back on the web, they were going to cut the money for processing and, and hopefully lose the need for supplemental income. So uh, it goes on to say that in the older system, if you wanted a Landsat scene, as we, we've talked before, I, th I think on one of our podcasts, you'd have to order the computer tape and they'd have to copy it and send it to you. And obviously that's quite high cost. So by making it free and open, they eliminated all their billing and accounting system. I went looking for the total number of downloads of Landsat scenes. So since December 2008 up until uh, late September 2017, we've had 68 million Landsat seeds downloaded. So when it started, they were running at barely a million. Wow. So a huge number. And without sounding like a start record of listing numbers at you today, <laughs> I also looked at the mission status documents for Sentinel-2. And at the start of 2017, this is really amazing, the start of 2017, ESA, the Sci-Hub, had 60,000 odd registered users. By the end 2017 it had doubled it to about 113,000. Wow. In, in the start of 20, 2017 they'd had a total of 2.37 petabytes of data downloaded and by the end of the last year they'd had a total of 12.24 petabytes. So we've doubled the users and, and we've gone six times the amount of data downloaded in one year. It really is hats off to the people at the USGS when they decided to, to open up the Landsat archive. 
and just plonk it out there because no one knew whether it was going to work or not as a as an idea whether people would download it you had to really take a punt and it's really paid off i think Uh, it's been an absolute game changer and then the numbers you just quoted for sentinel they're absolutely insane in terms of the size and the growth of all of that yeah this is just great news I, i think you can probably make a reasonable case to say that because of the open data policy of both ESA and USGS, that it has driven more people into looking at satellite data and potentially has driven more sales and interest in more commercial satellites. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I worked on a project in 2017 where the overarching point of the project was to look at, at different river catchments in the UK. And I just downloaded the sort of most recent cloud-free image that I could find, chopped it out to the catchment, did a um, false color composite, and plonked a, a PNG in front of people. And it totally transformed the project. Suddenly, it became right. We have to have sentinel imagery for for all of our catchments. Yeah, I mean, it's, to my mind, it feels like that's a very good case for the economic benefit of open data without that being open there's no way i would have been able to get an image in front of those people how do you feel about the hesitation to use open data because it might lead to people making decisions and then blaming the data upon the errors that they may have introduced to the data Ooh, that's an interesting one i suppose it comes back in some respects to um, a concept called knowledge intensive data sets it's great that the open data is out there and it's accessible and anyone can download it. But what this, this knowledge intensive data set concept means is that in order to understand how to process it and analyze the data and then get some decent information back off it, yeah. you actually need to be sufficiently technical and have quite a, a grounded understanding in what it is that you're looking at. And so yeah. a good example of that is, um, say, Sentinel-1 synthetic aperture radar. Most people would look at that. Uh, if they didn't have any Earth observation or remote sensing knowledge and just go, it's a grey speckly mess, don't really understand. Yep. As long as people who are championing open data also point out the limitations and the issues around open data, as well as all of the great benefits and plus points, then hopefully the people who are then using the data as well will be able to to understand that it's it's not the data's fault and that sometimes the data needs to be processed in a certain way in order to get the answer they're, they're looking for. The opposing argument I guess there is if you'd paid for that radar data and you'd misprocessed it or misinterpreted it, what would be the comeback on the supplier? Would there be a comeback on the supplier? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think so either. Yeah. So I don't want to trivialise that issue, but I don't feel it's that troublesome. We're faced in an age now, aren't we, where whatever you subscribe to or buy, you're faced with huge disclaimers to tick, sign or accept before you go ahead with that product. How often do you look at that for open? <laughs> um, I probably look at those disclaimers more for open data than I do for, for other things, in part because my business is based around supplying yes. of, and processing of open data. I need to know whether or not it's fully open and whether I can use it commercially. So I always do check the usage rights um, of, a, of an open data set. 
that said, I don't know whether I'm particularly strange in that way and other people don't bother. Yeah, I don't think you're alone. What about you? Do you, I mean, do you use a lot of open data? Yes, yes. Uh, do I check? Not as often as I should do. Okay. I would say. Maybe I should check a bit more. I just take it as read, you know, that's um, available for use. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's part of open data. It's to sort of remove the layers. So are there levels of openness? Because this is something that bugs me quite a bit, is if you have to, if you have to log in and create an account and provide details, is that pure open data? I understand that whoever's providing the open data would like to keep an, an idea of how it's being used and who is using it. Yes. And then linked to that, and this might be a second point, I don't know, but I'm going to come in and say it anyway. So the Environment Agency in the UK has released aerial photography. And that's great. It's brilliant that they've done that, and it's an amazing data resource. However, in order to keep the data volumes down, they've created it in something called an ECW format, which is a proprietary format. Yes. So is that open data? It is openly available, and you don't have to log in, you don't have to do anything, you can just download it, and that's fine. But it's a proprietary data format, so discuss. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, certainly if you want to use, uh, to write to ECW format, you need a license. I think, I think QJS can open ECW format. I think it can on Windows, but I don't think it can on Linux. Yeah, I, I normally go with the OSGO for W installer. My gut feeling is that it does. I think it does in that installation because it's all packaged together. But when I was installing it on Ubuntu 16.04, it doesn't come with that driver. So I had to try and install it myself. GVSIG is the other piece of software mm. that is, it has it all bundled in with it. And so I downloaded that and stuck it onto my Linux box and that worked fine. It's fine in that you can get at the data, but it just seemed like it was a step of faffiness that wasn't really needed. Yeah. And it didn't seem like there was anywhere on the we website that I was downloading the data from that was explaining their rationale. The only thing I can think of is because it creates uh, smaller files. I think as we go forward, though, I think we're going to see more open data. Yeah. Whether the quality of it will be good, whether you can find it will be another significant issue. Yeah. And how accessible it is. We joked at the start about things being free, but someone's got to maintain it. That's true. These things are important in their integrity and their documentation as well. So the governmental data, some of it's great, some of it's way out of date. In terms of, of being able to generate new ideas, new science, new products, then having open data is definitely way, 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 way better than not having it. What I'd quite like to see is some of the commercial data providers starting to almost do a, a rolling release of some of their archives. So I don't know how much data gets sold from pre-2005. So you sort of think, well, could, could they open that chunk and then... Every, at the end of every year, sort of one an extra year goes onto the archive that's open, and then they just sell the last ten years or fifteen years or twenty years of data, whatever's best for their, their business model. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it depends. You know, that comes down to a, a business decision, doesn't it? They might they might say yes, we will do that, but then you, they might get bombarded by requests and in, incur huge cost. I, I think we're very lucky with satellite data. How well and how standardized it is. I get a lot of my data from AWS and someone's got to pay for it. You don't have to log in to get the data. 
you can log in to get the data, but you don't have to log in to get the data. And even though um, you know the costs on AWS are low and they, they decrease all the time, but even so, there's a there is an inherent cost, and some of these data sets are so huge and accessed by so many people that it, it must be a bit of a headache actually for some of these organisations to keep on top of what the budgets are in order to make them open. How do we sum this all up then? That open data isn't free, <laughs> as perhaps you were would. Um, instinctively say it would be there is significant costs involved behind the scenes as well uh, i think open data is probably one of the the best things to happen in certainly in the last 10 years it's transformed the way that people and businesses and organizations work and who gets to see the data and i think the more data that is made open as long as it's maintained um, and documented and users are educated about what it can and can't be used for, I think it's just going to create more and more opportunities for everyone. Yeah. Let us know on the hashtag seen from above what you think. It falls quite nicely to say from our conversation about open data that we should mention two big phosphor G events coming up soon. First one, London in March, and then the the big global one in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania coming up, I think, in August. Keep an eye out for information about that on, on the various phosphor G web pages. We'll post a link. There's also a Rasta-specific conference. Is there? there. Oh, yes. <laughs> Rasta's Revealed 2018 is now open for bookings, and Rasta's Revealed is a conference that I run. Basically, Raster's Revealed is a one-day conference about the use of Raster datasets in all sorts of different forms. It tries to go across different market sectors and just talk about the tech. We use Raster data as a common thread. So, yeah, this is on the 11th of April, and it's down in London at the Urban Innovation Centre. If you're listening to this and you fancy presenting, then head on over to rastersrevealed.net and click on the links to book and submit an abstract. It's been fun. I've really enjoyed this recording this one. This has been really good fun. Um, looking forward to doing the next one as well. Thanks very much for listening. Please get in contact with us on Twitter on the hashtag seen from above. I'm at map underscore Andrew. And I'm at AJG Jogger, A-J-G-G-E-O-G-E-R. And next time we'll try and predict what's going to happen in 2018. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I can predict is that that's probably what we'll talk about. Cool. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Alistair. It's been fun. Till next time. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Look at that, I don't even know the plan. <laughs> no, I was thinking, oh, I'm impressing with some... some <laughs> How often do we do this? <laughs> Path is not an easy one to walk through So take me with you You don't have to go
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.